Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Jacob Dorman, Assistant Professor of History and American Studies at University of Kansas. He was in town recently to uh, give a uh, talk to a a symposium at Utah State University called Black Religious Experience in American History. His talk, Rethinking Center and Margins, the Centrality of African-American Alternative Religions. His book from Oxford University Press is Chosen People, The Rise of American Black Israelite Religions. It's very interesting. I hadn't known about a lot of this. Uh, Professor Dorman, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So the, 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 the sort of the central unifying theme, you talk about a lot of groups, mm-hmm. but uh, all of these would have a similar belief that the ancient Israelites were black and that, that, that uh, the blacks now are descended from those? That's right. Yeah. I, I'm looking at these groups, which actually include some white Israelite groups as well, but uh, groups that believe that they can trace their ancestry, their identity, and their interpretation of sacred history to a direct relationship with the ancient Israelites. Um, so um, among the African-American groups that do this, they start in the holiness movement, Um, in the 1890s as Christians that are really trying to reconnect with the Church of Jesus Christ, with uh, the Hebraic practices of his day. And then these movements um, start to develop more Hebraic practices, um, and the Seventh-day Sabbath uh, primary uh, among those, also the practice of uh, observance of Passover, observance of certain rules around uh, dietary restrictions. And then these kind of Christian movements uh, evolve, uh, and there's a second wave uh, that start to practice more Judaic forms of uh, Israelite religions in the 1920s during the time of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, And then they evolve once again in the 1960s during the era of the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Power Movement. Um, But there's all kinds of fascinating connections, both with movements like Rastafarianism, as well as with um, other Israelite movements, the Anglo-Israelite movements. Um, There's even some tie-ins, you know, I think, with uh, the early history of Mormonism. So it's been a really fascinating adventure for me to, to find all of these connections. We'll jump in and tell some and some fascinating people chronicled yeah. in, in your yeah. book. Uh, I guess at the heart of this is a, a people fashioning a narrative for themselves. And there's a lot of power in that narrative because that forms culture. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I think that at the heart of this is a refashioning, a refashioning of uh, sacred history and uh, and um, a real defiance of the kind of um, racism and Jim Crow uh, uh, kind of denigration of blackness and black people. This is a, a group or groups of people claiming sacred history um, for themselves, saying, no, the, the Bible is about us, the Hebrew people, that's about us. The ancient Israelites were black people, and we are black people, and looking to, you know, finding textual evidence in the scriptures themselves um, to support that. Um, And so I think that, you know, really at its heart, it's this kind of um, refutation of of racism and a real claiming of of sacred history. And so I guess uh, getting away from race, but uh, it's sort of an ethnic identity. If you have, you have a shared cultural uh, 
you're, you're fashioning uh-huh. that, that kind of an identity. I don't know if you call it yeah. ethnic, but... Uh, well, I'd, I don't think that we can get away from, from race. And I like a lot of scholars, I, I think that uh, when we talk about ethnicity, we're, we're talking about race in different mm-hmm. ways and just putting a different uh, label on it. Um, for the groups that I study, race was really quite uh, central. Mm-hmm. Um, it really uh, was a, a racial narrative, although they were um, in some ways diametrically opposed to the dominant racial narratives, right, that said that um, that that black people, you know, were descended, say, from Ham, that uh, the kind of whole uh, myth of Ham that m- tried to map um, race and the denigration of black people onto uh, the scriptures. What black Israelites and other groups have done instead is, um, in some cases, to uh, deny the very salience of 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 race. I mean, the holiness movement is one example that denied the salience of race. They said, we can find no scriptural basis for race. And so the holiness movement, which you know starts in the 1830s, but really takes off after the Civil War, um, created a number of interracial uh, churches that said, look, you know, race and racism are not scriptural, and we're not going to abide by them. Um, African Americans, I think, uh, claim the Israelite narrative in racial terms, but they're they're using it as a form of racial pride um, and as a way of explaining um, not just their the experience in slavery and afterwards, but also um, ancient history and and West African history, and they connect it all through through the Bible and through through Scripture. Mm. What what sorts of numbers are we talking about with uh, you know thousands of people? What uh, then and, and perhaps mm-hmm. now? Well, the numbers then and now have have varied widely. Um, um, when actually some of the most numerous Black Israelite uh, movements were the earliest ones. Uh, there was a prophet named uh, Bishop uh, William Saunders Crowdy, who was born in slavery in, in Maryland and um, freed himself during the uh, Civil War, served with the Union Army as a cook, and, and then moved out west after the war and worked for the railroad. Um, in 1893, he has a, a vision um, while he's working his farm in uh, in Oklahoma, and then he starts preaching and then starts a church, the Church of God and Saints of Christ. And that early church, I mean, he, this man was an amazing evangelist. Um, so he showed up in New York City and had 2,000 followers within a matter of months, moves on to uh, Philadelphia and does the same thing. And he founds churches across the West. Kansas is a, a big center. It goes up to Chicago, upstate New York, New York City, Philadelphia, Virginia. So that church you know, has thousands of members, um, just exactly how many, I, I'm not sure, but by any means, you know, a church of several thousand members in 1905 would be, you know, a mega church. Um, so the the early version of the black Israelite churches um, were um, quite numerous. The Judaic versions of the 1920s uh, were not very numerous, um, but their influence was kind of um, out of uh, 
uh, line with their numbers in, in many instances. Um, I, I think that th- these black Jewish or black Israelite churches and, and later synagogues um, helped to pass on the idea of the blackness of the ancient Israelites, which then became just an accepted item of faith among black Muslims, for example, and later on among many black Christians in the uh, 1960s. So their their numbers and their influence, um, well, their influence can't be strictly uh, limited to, to their numbers. Mm. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about Crowdy. Fascinating yeah. figure and, and what he preached. Yeah, well, William Saunders Crowdy, you know, he's born into slavery in Southern Maryland. Um, he fights in or, or serves in the Civil War. I was able to find uh, kind of a, a number of uh, instances of his life after the Civil War in some uh, places like Iowa and Denver that we don't think of as having large black populations today. But uh, in the years after the Civil War, the Midwest and the West did have substantial numbers of, uh, of uh, African-American people. And that's one thing that we have to keep in mind is that people, um, black people, have been continuously moving to try to find better opportunity uh, in some sense, in, in some cases, um, out of perhaps some people have argued out of a scriptural sense of uh, a, a, or a religious sense of destiny. But certainly the black migration uh, isn't, isn't a new thing, and, and it didn't begin with the so-called great migration of um, World War I. So Crowdy was part of a movement um, to Oklahoma in the 1890s. When Oklahoma was opened up to settlement, there were um, many African Americans who moved there, and in fact there, there was an effort to try to create it as a black state as a place where black people could have their independence. Um, and there was a very concerted effort to start all black towns. And Oklahoma indeed had had uh, several dozen of these all black towns where the population was black, you know, the police force was black, the school teachers were black. <laughs> you can go through all the functions of the town were provided by black people. Um, and there were, you know, dozens of these towns throughout not just Oklahoma, but Florida, Kansas. Uh, there was a real effort to create independence uh, because this was an era of Jim Crow segregation. This was an era of increasing lynching and racial violence and outright terrorism against black people as the Democrats kind of wrested control of the South uh, back from Republicans after the um, after. Uh, the end of Reconstruction. So Crowdy's movement, and I think his central insight that the ancient Israelites were black, have to be seen inside of this wider political context of migration and a search for black independence. Um, Crowdy himself was a Freemason. Uh, he was a member of the Baptist Church when he first had his, uh, his revelation. And then he, uh, he left home you know, there's a saying, no man's a prophet in his hometown. Uh, and I think his wife wasn't very happy with his revelations. Um, but he was a man on a mission. And so he went to Texas. He brought his son Isaac with him. And he started preaching, you know, wherever he could. Um, and getting harassed, uh, um, thrown into prison, uh, thrown into jail. Uh, 
nearly killed on several occasions, but he kind of triumphs through these um, uh, travails and develops into this remarkable evangelist um, who really was able to um, be extremely successful in spreading his message and his church, which is called the Church of God and Saints of Christ. Um, he, you know, he talked explicitly about Christ, and it wasn't until after his death in 1908, it wasn't until the 1930s um, that his church started to preach that when he was talking about Christ, he um, didn't really mean that Jesus was the Messiah. They started to, to preach a different understanding of of the prophets' uh, revelation. In fact, the church splits over this. There's kind of a Christian wing and a more Judaic wing. Um, but the church also, not only does he spread it throughout Kansas, Chicago, uh, upstate New York, uh, New York City, Philadelphia, Virginia, but he also uh, spreads it to South Africa in 1903. And um, through the agency of a uh, missionary for uh, an established African-American uh, church who takes the teachings of, of the church, this Israelite church, to South Africa. And the notion that the ancient Israelites were black you know, has a special poignancy in South Africa that's living underneath um, European you know, uh, colonialism. And Israelite movements, both within the Church of God and Saints of Christ and without, have been a, a major feature of the independent African churches, sometimes called the, the, the Zionist churches of uh, South Africa. And it's also, I think it's just fascinating because it's part of a, um, it's a transnational church that's directed by African Americans in Virginia, but it has this international um, uh, aspect to it. Mm. Still a going concern, yes. Today, the, yeah, this very much so. Yeah, with, with the very the variants mm -hmm. that you that you've uh, told us about. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Jacob Darman. He's assistant professor of history and American studies at the University of Kansas. He was in uh, Utah recently to give a talk uh, to a symposium called "Black Religious Experience in American History," presented by USU Religious Studies Program and USU History Department. And his talk was called Rethinking Center and Margins, the Centrality of African-American Alternative Religions. His very interesting book is called Chosen People, The Rise of American Black Israelite Religions. More following a brief break. This week in This American Life, our producer, Sarah Koenig, her mom has this list of seven things you are never, ever supposed to talk about because they are so boring. Never talk about how you slept. Nobody cares. Don't talk about your health either. Nobody cares. Um, your dreams. This week, cares. we take up the challenge. We look for non-boring stories on all seven topics and try to prove her wrong. Sunday afternoons at 2 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches.
We're back. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm talking with Jacob Dorman, Assistant Professor of History and American Studies at University of Kansas. His book is Chosen People, The Rise of American Black Israelite Religions. He gave a talk uh, to a symposium sponsored by USU Religious Studies Program and USU History Department on the USU campus uh, called Black Religious Experience in American History. And so, Professor Dorman, we're talking about, uh, when we talk about um, uh, black Israelite, we are talking about people who believe that the ancient Israelites were black and uh, that the, 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 they're descended from from those those people. That, that's kind of the central theme, even though there are di- many different groups. Right. That's right. So okay. we have um, Christian groups. You know, these, this starts with holiness, Christianity. We've got Judaic groups that begin in the 1920s. Uh, we have Rastafarians in Jamaica that are linked up um, to this movement as well. Um, And you could also include or at least recognize that uh, many African-American Muslims have also accepted the, this basic Israelite teaching. Mm. Um, The Israelite movement, you know, comes before the uh, 20th century uh, black Muslim movement and helps to influence it in some ways. So I'm wondering what there are obvious differences, of course, and I, I wonder what narrative meaning it gives to um, to go from bel- identifying very closely with the uh, Israelites, especially in their captivity mm-hmm. in Egypt, and, and of course uh, the slaves, you know, for obvious reasons, latched onto this as a, as a tenet of faith and hope, and that, the, that their God would deliver them just as the, the God of the Israelites delivered them. But then there, there's a difference crossing over to believing that those Israelites were black and, and, uh, and were descended, you know, black people descended from, from those people. I wonder if you talk about that. Yeah. Well, you know, many people have pointed out for several decades at least, probably much longer than that, that there's a, a basic affiliation or I, rather there's an identification with the ancient Israelites in the Hebrew Bible among enslaved uh, black people, right? That... Uh, slaves saw the story of Exodus as being as speaking to their condition, the promise of deliverance, and obviously their people drew parallels between the Egyptian bondage of the Israelites and the uh, American bondage of African descended uh, slaves. Um, and in fact, we know that um, many slaveholders, even after they decided in mass to try to Christianize their slaves, which didn't happen, you know, immediately. But when that begins to happen um, in mass in the 19th century, that many slave uh, owners said, you know, you would be crazy to try to uh, teach the entire Bible to slaves because its message of uh, liberation and exodus was so so manifest, so clear. Um, also, literacy among slaves was uh, suppressed, but... but um, they, you know, still managed uh, in many cases to read the Bible, to imbibe the Bible, to accept the teachings of, of the Bible, and um, also to create spirituals, right, that spoke to uh, God's promise of deliverance uh, to the Israelites in the story of Exodus. And many people have pointed to that kind of association, that biblical association, uh, but there's other kind of vectors for identification with Israelites. 
And Freemasonry was a, a big part of that, actually. Um, Prophet Crowdy, as I mentioned, was a Mason and uh, reportedly incorporated a lot of Masonic symbolism into um, the teachings of his church, which I might add I'm not privy to, um, but that are continued right to this day. Um, one of his peers and contemporaries, Bishop William Christian, uh, starts another black Israelite church uh, in 1889, a few years before Crowdy, actually. And Christian calls his faith Freemason's faith. He says it's the, the only form of religion is Freemason's religion. Um, and then even in the 1920s among these Judaic groups, there's also a, a Masonic affiliate to the major uh, black synagogue. Um, so when I discovered these kinds of affiliations, when I discovered that other African-American Freemasons des- described the black synagogue of Harlem in the 1920s as a quote-unquote bogus Masonic organization, I started to look more into Freemasonry and its uh, links to narratives of the Israelites. And what I discovered was that Freemasonry was one vector that helped to spread the idea uh, that contemporary people were descended directly from the ancient Israelites. Um, A lot of these uh, were Anglo-Israelite ideas uh, linking up uh, the English people, people from uh, the British Isles in general, to uh, the ancient Israelites. And so you had publications. There's, of course, a long literature of Anglo-Israelite uh, identifications and even prophets and prophetesses, Joanna Southcott and Richard Brothers, uh, among this uh, in, in this Anglo-Israelite uh, line of prophecy uh, from the beginning of the 19th century through and continuing, you could argue, uh, in, into the present. Um, so there's other ways, you know, besides simply the Bible that helped to spread uh, identification with the ancient Israelites. Mm. Uh, could, could you tell me a little bit more about the 1920s Harlem? This is a yeah. fascinating, fascinating <laughs> Where should I group start? of people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm not sure where to start, but this, <laughs> this is just fascinating uh, history. Um, a, a group of people who... Um, who, who started, I guess, the, having an identification with the Mystic East, right, and uh, formed a new religions based on belief, uh, the same belief that uh, Hebrew Israelites were black and contemporary African Americans were their descendants. Yeah, well, you know, 1920s Harlem is one of the, the highlights of African American history. It's often known as the Harlem Renaissance, although, you know, a lot of my peers uh, have spent a lot of time disputing the term Harlem, uh, pointing out that the Harlem, so-called Harlem Renaissance is created in Chicago, it's created in Washington, D.C. But Harlem, I think uniquely among these uh, centers of black population, becomes a symbol. It's really a symbol of hope for black people. Uh, It's a symbol of what's called the New Negro Movement. It's the feeling that after World War I uh, that Negroes, as they were known then, would have a new chance to um, enjoy the benefits of uh, citizenship, the um, to throw off the shackles and the legacies of slavery and repression that happened in Reconstruction afterwards, and to create really a, a new um, civilization uh, that black people could prove 
uh, to the world and to themselves that they were the um, possessors of a world-class civilization. And it's that word civilization that comes up again and again. Um, so Harlem is uh, becomes one of the largest, not, not the largest centers of black population, but in part because of its location in New York, its proximity to the publishing industry, to the, you know, New York is a media capital. Um, it's, it's center as an entertainment industry, you know, boasting and attracts uh, talent from all over the U.S., people like Louis Armstrong, Lester Young, great jazz musicians, great blues musicians like uh, Bessie Smith go there. It's nightclubs become famous. And whites uh, below 125th Street start to notice what's going on. Uh, you have um, famously Carl Van Vechten, who's this uh, white writer um, of means who starts, who just throws himself into uh, Harlem and then writes a, a famous novel uh, about Harlem. And you have the sponsoring of young African, mostly young African-American artists, sculptors, uh, writers, uh, who start to produce work in great quantity uh, about black life. Langston Hughes uh, among them, um, Zora Neale Hurston uh, a little bit later, uh, Claude McKay, a Jamaican uh, writer. So Harlem is also unique because not only is there a large African-American population, principally from the South, from uh, Virginia and Georgia, uh, Alabama, um, but unlike other black cities like Chicago, you know, centers of migration like Detroit and Chicago and Cleveland, New York is also a place where there's a large population of West Indians. Um, the most famous of them is named Marcus Mosiah Garvey. And Garvey comes to uh, New York and um, founds a branch of his organization called the Universal Negro Improvement Association, the UNIA. And this becomes uh, one of the largest uh, black uh, uh, militant organizations, a black nationalist organization. And Garvey argues um, that Africa must be ruled by black people, that it is, in some sense, certainly a spiritual home for black people and perhaps even a future political home for blacks in the, in, in the diaspora. Um, and then there's more uh, mainstream uh, leaders and, and organizations as well, such as the NAACP and the Urban League that are also based in Harlem. So among the, the, the millions of people that are following Garvey, are a number of West Indians in uh, New York who are interested in religion and religion's place in this new political matrix that Garvey is creating. Um, two West Indians uh, are a, a man from Barbados named Arnold Josiah Ford, who becomes very close to Garvey and then leaves the UNIA and starts a synagogue with other people that he met in the Garvey movement. Um, Rab there's a Rabbi Mordechai Herman, and there's a Rabbi Wentworth Arthur Matthew, who are also supporters of the Garvey movement, and Matthew is also a West Indian. And Ford, um, so 
on the one hand, you have this kind of burgeoning black um, political uh, movement in a, in a burgeoning black city. But you also have the presence of large numbers of Jews, principally from Eastern Europe, Ashkenazi Jews, um, who have migrated in the previous 20 years, immigrated to the U.S. And they start to mix um, with these African Americans and West Indians who are interested in Judaism and these uh, Ashkenazi European Jews. Um, and there's a certain transfer uh, that happens. And it's not the case that that blacks start to practice Ashkenazi Judaism, but they do start to incorporate some elements of Ashkenazi Judaism, many of elements of Ashkenazi Judaism, into a larger political and religious project that's very diverse, that includes Freemasonry, that includes Christianity, that includes esoteric and occult um, um, elements as well. So it's a very, I think it's a fascinating, very dynamic period. And it seems to me, um, it's very American. It's, it's kind of a very open, very plural society. Ideas like this can ricochet around and, and, and uh, you know, different sorts of um, connections can be made like this. Yeah, and this is, this is what I'm calling polyculturalism in, in the book, that you have all of these different cultures meeting and mingling, but they're, they're mingling through the agency of individuals right, that are creatively putting these ideas together. And there is a kind of free marketplace of ideas in America in general and certainly in a very exciting and dynamic time uh, like 1920s Harlem in a place that's dominated by so many uh, migrants and immigrants from so many parts of the world. Um, there's the opportunity to kind of mix and, and blend old and new, kind of familiar and foreign. And that happens time and time again. Black Judaism is one example of this, but black Islam is another example of this. Black spiritual churches, I tend to focus on the black ones, but the, you, know, the, you can probably find this in a lot of new, what are called new religious movements. And I think that it's instructive of how cultures and religions form, you know, in general. Um, I think that even the most established religions are actually changing all the time, especially if you think about the practice of their members as opposed to the dogma or doctrines of the, the churches themselves. Um, and in certain times and places, though, I think there's, a, there's even a, a more rapid uh, change. Um, and a more rapid ability, uh, the opportunity for people to put together um, new configurations of uh, religious and cultural ideas. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Jacob Dorman. He is Assistant Professor of History and American Studies at the University of Kansas. And he was in Utah recently to give a talk uh, to a symposium on the USU campus called Black Religious Experience in American History, sponsored by USU Religious Studies Program and USU History Department. His talk was uh, titled Rethinking Center and Margins, the Centrality of African-American Alternative Religions. And his uh, book is uh, Chosen People, The Rise of American Black Israelite Religions. More following a break. 
On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll traverse many of the original seven Celtic nations and venture beyond for lilting Celtic melodies from Africa, Italy, Canada, and Spain. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join me for Celtic Around the World, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Friday nights at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thank you to our fall membership campaign partner, Rocky Mountain Power, for supporting local news and information on Utah Public Radio. Heard in Hanksville at 91.9 FM, in Ivans and Santa Clara at 89.1, and in Jensen at 89.7. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Sunflower Hill Inn, a historic ranch house and garden cottage located three blocks from downtown Moab, offering 12 guest rooms with queen-size beds, private baths, hot tub, and seasonal outdoor pool. Information is at sunflowerhill.com. Back with Jacob Dorman, Assistant Professor of History and American Studies at University of Kansas. Uh, he was in Utah recently to give a lecture to the, a symposium uh, sponsored by USU Religious Studies Program and USU History Department called Black Religious Experience in American History. His book out from Oxford University Press is Chosen People, The Rise of American Black Israelite Religions. We've been talking about many groups, most recently about the Harlem Renaissance, and uh, sort of the, the central theme is, is groups, religions based on the belief that ancient Hebrew Israelites were black and that contemporary African Americans are their descendants. And as Professor Dorman has pointed out, this uh, includes um, you know, black Jews, but also the black Muslim movement and, and many, including Rastafarianism. Yeah. Earlier in the program, Professor, you, you mentioned in passing, and I want you to concentrate on this now, that would be interested, of interest to people in Utah, some parallels from this history to history of Mormonism. Yeah. Well, um, I assume that everyone within range of my voice right now probably knows more about the history of Mormonism than I do. I, I don't know if that's an accurate assumption or not. As someone who I have not written on Mormonism, I've certainly read uh, a few books and, and articles. Uh, but, you know, uh, there's Israelite ideas within Mormonism um, and also, so I've been led to believe, a similar interest in the Anglo-Israelite um, heritage and in, in Freemasonry. Um, and what I'm trying to say uh, about these groups is not that any of those histories or legacies created black Israelites. Um, in, in, in the similar fashion, I don't think you can understand uh, Mormonism entirely by understanding, say, the religious history of the burned-over district of upstate New York, I don't think that explains um, the uh, revelations of uh, uh, Prophet Smith. But I, I do think that it helps you to understand some of um, the context of, of these uh, religious movements. And so... I'm not trying to say uh, that black Israelites, you know, were created by Anglo-Israelites. But I do think that there the kind of parallel evolutions of the idea that contemporary people were directly related to the Israelites that you could back up that assertion by directly looking at scriptures by doing kind of um 
philological studies of, you know, language, um, you know, that Anglo-Israelite texts that compared, say, the tribe of Dan to the Danish people. Um, those kinds of linguistic arguments become very popular in the 19th century and then are distributed, as I found, through um, through Masonic uh, networks. Um, so I think that um, you can't you can't explain these uh, religions by knowing about the context, but the context is still helpful um, in understanding kind of what uh, the founders of, of such religions had to draw upon or or or, or go from. I want to have you talk a little bit about the what I understand. Uh, I was reading an, uh, an interview you gave. Uh, to a publication, University of Kansas. Um, the genesis of, of this research, um, and you can confirm, I guess, or deny this, uh, in 1991, riots uh, in New York between white Hasidic uh, Jews and, and, and the blacks in that, that area. A, uh, a white Hasidic Jew struck two black children, I think, and this is Crown Heights, and I think we all remember this, killing one of them. And then a rumor started that emergency responders rushed to help the Jewish men in the car, but not the children. Uh, this resulted in uh, at least one Jewish man uh, uh, being left dead, despite the fact he wasn't even involved in the yeah, in, in the incident. Uh, and this kind of gets us to um, and uh, you know black Israelite beliefs here would would get us into this this intersection yeah. or and relationship between Jews and blacks, yeah. which historically has has been uh, viewed at least as good. You're both. Both groups are, are pushing for civil rights and yeah. and uh, so forth, but this incident in Crown Heights uh, you yeah. know, highlights some tensions. You might want to mention, or I'll, I'll mention that the the initial uh, uh, death was caused by a car accident. Car accident, the, yes. The, I, I'm sorry, I left the that white out. Jewish um, of um, so that was this tragedy that um, unfolded in New York in 1991, and it certainly sparked. A lot of um, dialogue and consternation, especially I think among white Jews who felt that um, felt uh, there is at least a popular understanding among many white Jews that they were part of uh, a civil rights coalition with African Americans uh, during the civil rights movement, um, and that had been overlaid with uh, at least a decade worth of tensions, probably more, many decades worth of tensions um, between blacks and, and white Jews. And so there um, was, as a result of uh, 1991 Crown Heights, there was a lot of discussion um, in you know magazines, academic circles, uh, college campuses about Black Jewish relations, and that was just at the time when I was graduating high school and becoming interested in you know intellectual things, and uh, I became interested in parallels between Black nationalism and Jewish nationalism, and I um, was. Uh, I was reading the the philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey, this great black nationalist. I kept noticing all the times that he referenced um, Jewish nationalism in very 
favorable terms. And then I uh, did a research paper on him and discovered that there were these uh, black Israelites who were members of his organization and supporters of the organization. And I discovered that Garvey had been a prophet, or is a prophet, for Rastafarians, who see him as a equivalent to a kind of apostle uh, like a John. Um, and so that, you know, at the time, I think I thought, well, that's just kind of curious. Um, since I was interested in African-American history and interested in Jewish history, yeah, black Jews, you know. But it was later on, I was actually in Israel in college, um, and I was doing an archaeological dig uh, in the north, uh, right, actually by uh, the Sea of Galilee in Jesus' country. And I discovered I was not going to be, I was not cut out to be an archaeologist <laughs> or certainly an assistant archaeologist, you know, uh, digging with a paintbrush. Uh, so, but I happened to run into a group of uh, black Israelites, you know, f- originally from the U.S. Uh, in Jerusalem, and they invited me to to visit them in uh, in the Negev Desert in, in the south. And I did. And when I did, I just, I was pretty, you know, fascinated uh, by this group, by their claims about the past, about sacred history, by the way they're combining Zionism and black nationalism and Israelite identity. And I, um, it was just one of those kind of serendipitous transformative moments I've spent the rest of my life since then thinking about this. Hmm. Uh, How are these groups, and there are many groups, and it might be a lot of different reactions depending on what group you're talking about, but talking about uh, black Israelites in in general, Mm -hmm. how are they viewed by, say, Jews, general, Christians who come in contact with? What's the reaction? Um, Well, you know, I can talk about that in general or I can talk about that historically. I mean, white Jews... Jews of European descent, who I refer to as white Jews, although some people would dispute that, but white Jews um, in general have not seen these groups as being uh, legitimate. And, you know, they would say it's not because of their race, it's because, you know, we have certain standards of who is and who is not a Jew. You have to either be born of a woman recognized to be a Jew or um, convert, right? That, of course, becomes more complicated. Um, and in its kind of, in, in many cases, you know, the race of these people is itself a barrier for European-descended Jews who no matter what their religion teaches, nevertheless are so accustomed to seeing other Jews as looking like them that they have difficulty of thinking of people of a different uh, race, no matter what that race is, as being Jewish. And so Jews of color, and there's an increasing uh, number of Jews of color uh, today, uh, very commonly report you know, these kinds of problems of not being recognized as Jews or accepted um, as Jews. Uh, But I think it's 
it's an issue that most uh, white Jews today are becoming increasingly aware of and are looking to various ways to try to um, promote the idea that you don't have to um, the whole, you know, like the old advertisements, funny, you don't look Jewish, right? That looking Jewish is, is not, um, is something that hopefully in, in, in the not too dear, not too distant future will, will change our, uh, those ideas. Um, black Jews for their part have reciprocated and, and, a central tenet among many black Israelite, not simply black Jews, but among many uh, Hebrew Israelite uh, people would be to say that white Jews are illegitimate, that white Jews are, you know, don't come from the original Israelites because the the original Israelites uh, were black. So there's a kind of dialectic of authenticity and inauthenticity that both groups um, that all groups, there's there's many groups involved here, but all groups, you know, use to different extents. What about the, the conversations, um, to the extent that you know, know mm-hmm. within the African-American community itself? And how would the broader African-American community view <clears throat> black Israelites? Well, you know, Rabbi Matthew, who founded the commandment keepers Ethiopian Hebrews tradition of the Harlem Renaissance era in the 1920s and died in 1972. He um, reported being kind of bombarded, sometimes literally bombarded by his Christian uh, neighbors. Um, Black Jews have faced, you know, they've faced a a lot of resistance from non-Jewish blacks over their legitimacy. And I actually think that it's one of the reasons why black Islam has been more successful numerically than black Jews is that um, there's a lot more Jews in this country, or there has been historically a lot more Jews. Um, there, st- that still is the case, but um, before um, the reform of our immigration laws in 1965, um, I think it was harder for African Americans to claim that mantle because of the presence of white Jews. Um, whereas with a, uh, a smaller population of Muslims and with a greater degree of adoption of Islam in Africa uh, among you know the early followers of the Prophet Muhammad, among uh, dark-skinned people in general in parts of the world known as the East or Africa and the Orient, it was easier for African Americans to inhabit uh, this mantle. And it also became a kind of critique of Christianity and the West in ways that um, Judaism, because it was accepted as so much a part of the West, it was difficult um, for people that wanted to represent themselves as Jews to critique uh, Christianity and the West. But that is that is a central element of all of what we call alternative African-American religions outside of Christianity is a critique of Christianity as being uh, a tool of the slaveholders, a tool to suppress black people. I wonder, we just have a few minutes left. Um, and, and of course, you, you're a historian, you study the history, 
but I want to take this a little bit more to current politics, not not specific politics, but it seems that we we have a lot of trouble talking about race and navigating that, and and racial issues are bound up, as you've been demonstrating, in history, in perception and self-perception and perception of others about you. It's bound up in religion, bound up in culture. And as you've navigated this and studied this very interesting history, I wonder if that's given you any insights at all in, in, in how to move forward conversation about race. Well, you know, I think that the conversation would be vastly improved if people educated themselves about race. Um, you know, I, I study what I study because I realized when I went to college that I needed to know more about race, even though, you know, I've been, I went to public schools um, with black kids and Asian kids and Latino kids my whole life. But, um, you know, it takes, it really takes some concerted effort and study. And uh, the thing that troubles me today is that it seems that people are willing to speak on race, even you know, public figures, media anchors, talking heads, even when they really don't know anything about our troubled racial history, or, or, you know, I, I think that everybody could benefit from learning more about the history of um, racism and the history of racial privilege. You know, I increasingly I'm in conversation with um, white Jews to talk uh, with them about racial privilege. You know, uh, this country, you know, had what many people have called an apartheid housing system for most of the 20th century, where the U.S. government through the FHA and the VA supported home loans for white people and not for people of color. Um, you couldn't become a citizen uh, in up in until uh, the uh, early uh, 1920s if you weren't uh, if you weren't white. You know that we've had this these legacies that are not simply about slavery, although that's a significant enough legacy. So I would like to see everybody um, educate themselves a little bit more. Um, go beyond the talking heads, uh, find the th- people that have, you know, thoughtfully tried to learn as much about race and racism as possible, and just not be afraid to uh, make mistakes. You know, when you don't know about something, I think you're afraid that you're constantly making a mistake. Um, but like, you know, open your mouth, don't be afraid of putting your foot in it, and and engage others including people of different races in conversation about race um, and and racism um, because you have to you have to start somewhere you know so I noticed that you know when I talk with my students about I was just teaching about blackface minstrelsy people are a little bit uh, wary about talking on that kind of a topic but um, you have to start somewhere, you know, and I think uh, everybody brings to it their own experiences. But, you know, there's always something to be learned to from um, studying and and reading um, 
trying to get beyond just the kind of um, whatever the inflammatory kind of media circus is that's going on and and uh, talking with people that are you know really thoughtful about race and uh, there's a lot of people out there that have a lot to say a lot of um, valuable perspective we will uh, leave it there. We're out of time. The book is a very, very interesting history. Chosen People, The Rise of American Black Israelite Religions. Jacob Dorman, the author, has been my guest for Access Utah today. And he is assistant professor of history and American studies at the University of Kansas. He gave a talk recently at the uh, Black Religious Experience in American History Symposium at Utah State University, sponsored by USU Religious Studies Program and USU History Department. Title of that talk, Rethinking Centered Margins, the Centrality of African-American Alternative Religions. Jacob Dorman, a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And for producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of specialty salads, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Thank you to our fall membership campaign partner, Rocky Mountain Power, for supporting local news and information on Utah Public Radio. Heard in Randolph and Woodruff at 91.1 FM and in Roosevelt at 100.1. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5.